the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Planted with Sarah. I'm Sarah Pion, your host. And today we have the second part, the other co-chair of the Congressional Cannabis Caucus, Representative Earl Blumenauer out of Oregon. Representative Blumenauer, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to the conversation, Sarah. Um, When I was reading about you, I realized that in 73, you were one of the earliest people to really push for change with policy around cannabis and convictions and how it's been impacting people. Would you want to talk more about that? Certainly. Uh, As a child legislator uh, uh, in 1973, uh, I was involved with some efforts that dealt with decriminalization. You remember uh, in the early 70s, this was a period where we criminalized late stage alcoholics. We threw them in jail. Um, And in Oregon at that point, we made important steps forward for reform uh, to decriminalize uh, people who suffered from the illness of alcoholism. But at the same time, we reviewed our policies regarding cannabis. Um, It was uh, very clear at that point that having criminal penalties associated with a substance that actually shouldn't be a controlled substance at all made no sense. And I was pleased to be part of an effort uh, for reform uh, in 1973 when Oregon was the very first state to decriminalize cannabis. Now I will tell you um, that I had hoped, given our success uh, 50 years ago, that we would have made much more rapid progress. Um, We ended up having, I don't know, about a a 30-year hiatus uh, with the ill-advised, cynical war on drugs from Richard Nixon uh, and the just say no uh, in the Reagan administration. Uh, But over the course of the last 20 years, we've watched the momentum build. And I think we are reaching a point where we're finally going to be able to end this sorry chapter of American history. Yeah, I I feel so heartened by all the changes that we've had. And also the fact that we're having conversations, not only about the fact that people need to be able to have access to use cannabis without any repercussions, of course, we always want to have the conversations about balance and really educating the public so that they can safely use products, but also having the conversations about the fact that sometimes when policies are made, it's not necessarily about a person's health and well-being, but these are based on a lot of racist policies. These are also based on industrial competition and really looking at like, you know, what we can do now, because back in the day, like I remember when I taught my first classes at City College, um, talking about, you know, Henry Ford and his hemp car and the DuPonts and the things that were going on with um, our own William Randolph Hearst from here in the Bay Area with the competition with lumber. And now we can actually look at not only creating accessibility, but creating justice creating sustainability and for your constituents, prosperity, Um, not only with using cannabis, but also with hemp products and using industrial hemp. And so there's a really unique opportunity not only to 
replace some things, make some things right, but even maybe look at doing business in a whole different way, like a more a more wholesome way. Right. There's a lot to unpack in what you just said there, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I, 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 well, no, I, because there's there is a lot to unpack. Uh, we've had um, a very sorry history for the last 50 years uh, where the very cynical policy on the part of the Nixon administration to deliberately criminalize this and assault on black people and young people, uh, overruling their own blue ribbon commission about what should happen. Um, and it has had devastating effects. I and mean, is uh, a million young black men have had their lives turned upside down. Uh, we have delayed the therapeutic benefits of cannabis, uh, well known for millennia. Um, it's just this last month, we were able to pass my cannabis research bill. I'm uh, which so excited about rid. that. I'm, I'm totally excited. And it is uh, the first major cannabis bill that was signed by this administration. Um, you know, one of the real problems we have uh, is that we don't have a test for impairment. And so there are hundreds of thousands of people a month who fail pre-employment drug tests. Uh, and because they have a trace of cannabis in their system, not by any stretch of the imagination impaired, but that's that contributes to our severe supply chain problems. I mean, there are so many elements here that we need to get right. Um, we started uh, a bipartisan cannabis caucus to be able to encourage people on Capitol Hill to understand this. Not everybody's been involved with it for 50 years. Uh, I'm, uh, I have enjoyed uh, carrying this campaign literally from Santa Barbara to Bangor, Maine on the state level uh, legalization efforts, which um, have driven this uh, revolution, uh, shall we say, uh, starting, of course, as you know, with medical cannabis um, and uh, then uh, moving forward uh, on a grand scale uh, uh, with adult use. Uh, we have uh, watched this being driven largely by advocates and voters, uh, people in the industry, uh, a few truth tellers. Um, as I've been campaigning on this around the country, we don't often, in, until recently, we haven't encountered elected officials. It's just been something that people wanted to keep at arm's length. Mercifully, that's changing, as you know, uh, and that's adding to this wave that is building, uh, which makes me think that we are within a year or two of finally ending this failed war on drugs. Just to jump back for a moment. Now, I know that you've said in the past you've you've never used cannabis and you've been such a huge supporter. But what was your first experience with cannabis that made you that gave you that aha moment? Well, it, it was when we were involved with just the facts. 
uh, it was something that is outside my experience. Uh, I hadn't used it. I didn't really know anybody. <coughs> um, although I subsequently found out that a lot of people that I knew were using it. It just wasn't something that was shared with me. The notion that we have something uh, that has so many positive applications and we were interfering with people's lives, whether they wanted to, for whatever reason they wanted to use it for. We know that cannabis is um, not addictive, that it's not dangerous, that it has therapeutic benefits. It is basically does not qualify for schedule one. In fact, if we were scheduling drugs today, cannabis would not be scheduled at all. Right. And tobacco would be a schedule one because it's highly addictive and dangerous to the health. Um, for me, that initial experience uh, in, a, in a very analytic sense, it, it was not reasonable, it was not fair, and it was having serious consequences. Uh, the sense of that unfairness has only grown with time. I was proud that our governor um, this week uh, issued pardons for almost 45,000 uh, people who had low level uh, uh, cannabis offenses, wiping the slate clean, um, uh, as well as any fees or fines that were involved. So just to not deny them access to education or housing or having that stigma on their record. It makes a huge difference. I have a colleague who um, who ended up having a – she did go to jail for cannabis for a short time. And after that, getting her life back together, and she was an amazing pastry chef, and she couldn't get a job for years until she got her record expunged. And the freedom that she's had in the past year has been amazing. It's, it's just crazy. I, going back to um, the research area of it, m my mother is a cancer researcher. So when I was, and she's a, oh. yeah, she's an oncology nurse. So when I was going through chemo, she had done the clinical trials years earlier, and it was really? because, yeah, and it was because of her that I knew I could use THC to help with my nausea when I was going through treatment. Yeah. Although she will tell you, she never told me to use cannabis. She was always talking about Marinol. But what I did find was when I, I did use Marinol because I would be in San Francisco, I'd start my chemo on a Wednesday, I'd end on a Friday, I'd hop on a plane to go see my mom who lived in Dallas. She was doing research at Baylor. And of course, I wasn't going to travel with my cannabis. Yeah. So I took Marinol with me. And the one thing I found was that synthesized cannabinoids are not as effective as what we're looking mm -hmm. at when we're looking at like whole plant products. Yeah. I'm really excited, so excited about everything you've passed around that to really get some real information so that we can help people. And also um, through the years, you know, I've worked with, I've had over 18,000 hours of experience with human beings in cannabis and working with um, places like UCSF and Kaiser with their patients and especially in palliative care. And physicians are really eager to learn more about it to help their patients but they also want to have that institutionalization of the, yes. the research so that they can bring it forth and talk to their colleagues about it. And 
when we are looking at cannabis, there are people who say that it does all these wonderful things and it does no wrong. We have people who say that, you know, it's the devil. But I always like to talk about the fact that we metabolize it differently. We have to create, we have to set people up with expectations around their personal interest in exploring how it works for them as an individual because your friend who has a chocolate-covered blueberry that might help them for sleep, it may not help you. And so to have that mindfulness, I feel like, can really extend to other parts of our lives as well. Like cannabis, a cannabis policy is not just about social justice. That's really important, social equity. But I think it's also about getting us back into a time of critical thought where we really start looking at facts. And like the past yeah. few years with facts, it's been a little shady. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, that's a very powerful observation. Um, knowledge is power. And we need to make sure we know what we're dealing with right now. Right. Uh, because so much of this is, uh, just shall we say, in a gray area. Uh, where people are having to sort of do workarounds. Um, we really don't have uh, the confidence that we know what we're dealing with. Having this research legislation passed is a critical step to be able to know exactly what we've got, how things work, and be able to deal with what you're talking about in terms of the individual reactions, because this is an area uh, where there are variations. Um, but, you know, we're talking about 8,000 years of human experience. Yes. Um, being able to learn from that, being able to uh, have the United States be in the forefront of cannabis research, rather than having to outsource it to Israel or Great Britain or Canada. Um, there's a lot to be learned. Uh, there is a lot uh, to be able to protect people so they know what it is they actually have. Yeah. It was fascinating. Uh, one of the very first meetings I had as a member of Congress working on this issue was at Oregon Health Science University, meeting with uh, some uh, physicians, some uh, researchers uh, who were very clear that uh, being able to use medical cannabis uh, was a very powerfully effective for children with extreme seizure disorders, yep. having epileptic fits uh, sometimes hundreds of times a day. And the only thing that worked for these parents to be able to have their children stop being tortured was cannabis. But they had to develop their own therapies. Uh, they they had to take their chances uh, dealing with product on the street. Um, and the researchers lamented that. They wished that they had an opportunity to be able uh, to, uh, to, to deal in a way that was much more holistic and scientific, but the federal government got in the way. Well, the federal government's taking a step out of the way. We've had, as you know, some workarounds. We've made some progress. But I think the, the cannabis uh, research legislation is going to help us uh, forward. It's fascinating, isn't it, that this is an area where, uh, you know, the federal government has just been uh, a, a problem, uh, has not been an area of solutions. Uh, we've, we've had use 
explode at the state and local level, being able to provide the, the justice that we're talking about here in terms of expungement, um, being able to provide access to something that transforms people's lives. Um, but I mean, I, I have legislation, I, I think, you know, dealing with veterans access yes. to medical cannabis. So important. Uh, and, the, and the notion that VA does not allow their doctors to talk to veterans who would benefit from who, who actually are benefiting. I've I've talked to um, probably several hundred veterans who feel that medical cannabis has literally saved their lives. Um, and the VA who used to hand out opioids like Tic Tacs uh, still uh, does not permit their physicians to work with veteran patients. It's absurd. It is. It is. I um a few years ago, I was actually on a show called Veterans Voices, and there was somebody from the VA there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had a really great conversation with her before we went on air, but they have to toe the line and say a certain thing, even if they personally don't feel like it's harmful. Because I've had so many veterans that have used cannabis to stop using opiates, also to stop using benzodiazepines, yes. which highly addictive. And now we know through research yep. causes dementia. There's just so much. And with the research portion of it, I'm just so excited. The thing I'm really excited about with research is the fact that we don't have to use that nasty old cannabis that they were growing for the federal program anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mississippi. That's right. <laughs> thanks thanks for providing it. But I, I know um, a, a couple of the federal patients, and they said that this, it was just – pretty horrible stuff. So how can you, you know, when we look at research, you only get out of it what you put into it. And so it's just really wonderful to see people like you out there representing us and really introducing well thought out ideas of how we can actually be successful in our journey through this. Uh, I was looking at your your paper, The Path Forward, that you did with, with um, Jared Polis how did you come about doing that? And what were some of the things that you were excited about changing as you started to, I know it was kind of a more of a living document. I'd like to hear more about that. Well, I had uh, taken a, a couple days and just decided that I was going to capture everything I knew about cannabis because it was, um, it was clear to me that we were reaching a tipping point in terms of policies at the, at the state level. Mm -hmm. uh, we were having uh, elections about legalization. And I thought it was important to just uh, provide a document that I could use uh, with uh, the members of the public and especially members of Congress. Uh, and so, and it was very therapeutic to just sit down and uh, write everything I knew about it and then do a little more research and refine it. And I think we ended up with a very good product, a comprehensive report uh, about the state of play. Uh, and as you say, we've uh, been uh, open to adjustments that uh, as new 
um, one of the areas that uh, we have to run to keep up is all of the areas that have legalized cannabis. We have, you know, we just got two more states that uh, yeah. approved adult use. Um, it It is uh, important, I think, for us to be able to be fact-based. Yes. To talk about the history, to talk about the racist history uh, of cannabis prohibition, uh, to be able to share uh, the, the the hidden history of uh, the fact that during World War II, they were growing hemp on the site of the Pentagon. I've got a great picture of a hemp really? plant that's probably like 10 feet high. Uh, they, they were growing hemp for the war effort because the hemp fiber uh, was woven into rope that they needed for military activities because the Philippines had been uh, the source of uh, sisal where they, they made rope and yeah. that was overrun by the Japanese. And so we were promoting domestic hemp production <laughs> for the war effort. Um, but just one example of many about the, the versatility of uh, hemp and cannabis, um, having people understand the history, understand uh, why, uh, the, how it became illegal right. uh, and federal law. Um, uh, just even the nomenclature, marijuana was, you yeah. know, it was, it was uh, to emphasize uh, the idea that this comes from Hispanics, from Mexicans, uh, as opposed to cannabis. I mean, it's just thing, uh, item after item, uh, to towards the demonization of the product. Um, it wasn't just uh, reefer madness. There was a whole range of efforts, as you know, uh, to demonize, to be able to um, provide misinformation. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, uh, it's been a long road back. Um, one of the things that has happened uh, that really derailed the progress that I thought we started uh, in the early 70s uh, was this war on drugs that became so deeply ingrained, putting so much money into enforcement of a seriously flawed policy, billions of dollars. Uh, and as you know, we ended up uh, arresting and uh, millions of people, disrupting their lives. Um, as I mentioned, we just uh, pardoned almost 50, uh, 45,000 here in Oregon. But the ripple effects of this linger yes. uh, in terms of, of uh, like your friend, uh, who it took years to be able to get her life back for no good reason. Right. And that money could have been used for things that we badly need now, like education and social services. Amen. And so moving forward, where we legalize, regulate, and tax, uh, there will be uh, literally a gusher of money if we can get rid of the black market. Right now, there is still uh, too many uh, illegal operations that are profiting and undercutting the efforts of people who are trying to play by the rules. But I hope that that is 
soon to change. We have passed our Safe Banking Act um, twice through the House of Representatives with overwhelming bipartisan support, um, allowing this state legal industry to be able to have access to banking services. Forcing them to be cash only is very expensive and it is hopelessly unsafe. Oh, not only for the people that have it on hand on site, but the fact that people will be targeted if you know that you go yep. the person's going to the dispensary and they have cash on hand. Yep. Also, an- another thing I have a question about, do you, when do you think that we'll start seeing some changes as far as taxes? Because as we know now, cannabis businesses, since they're ske- Schedule 1 businesses or they're selling Schedule 1 products, yep. they don't have the same tax advantages that right. most businesses do. When do you right. see a change with that? Well, uh, part of what is so exciting about the prospect of moving it into the mainstream is that our legislation to fully legalize, like the Moore Act, Mm -hmm. uh, or possibly something that uh, our friends in the Senate are working on, and I hope gets passed in the lame duck session, uh, allows us to have a modest tax uh, on cannabis at the federal level. If we do that at the federal level, uh, then we can justify making other changes. Now, you're absolutely right. It's uh, it's in, it's really totally unjust that state legal cannabis businesses cannot fully deduct the cost of doing business from their taxes. So they pay much higher taxes than an equivalent business would. But frankly, what that has promoted is a, a culture of tax evasion. People cut corners. Uh, there's some creative accounting mm-hmm. uh, because it's so punitive uh, and it is so unfair that I think there's some people that rationalize, well, uh, I'm not going to fully comply or I'm going to give myself uh, the benefit of creative accounting. I think when we are in a situation where we can have a state uh, and a federal system that is fully legal, um, I think what's going to happen is that more people will voluntarily comply. They will end up actually raising more money, but doing it more fairly. Um, and there's, there is a huge amount of money that is being made Uh, in cannabis, it's just being made by people who are cutting corners or people who are actively involved in the black market. Uh, This is an opportunity for us to make a significant adjustment and have that money go to legitimate businesses and pay legitimate taxes, um, which I think will be revolutionary. The other item that we haven't really talked about is that when it is fully legalized and we for example change the uh, the very flawed policies of the uh, VA uh, and allow medical cannabis to be not just talked about but be able to be dispensed uh, if we are using medical cannabis for our veterans for uh, Medicare and Medicaid it will save hundreds of billions of dollars, it will be a safer product um, and it will be have sort of a 
a revolutionary effect in terms of the overall industry. Um, and it will be transformational, I'm convinced. Yeah, I agree. We in California here, we have compassion programs. And that was one of the things I started during the 215 days where we were able to give free cannabis to people who were sick and in need. Right. When we had legalization, we had to pause the program because they didn't, yep. you know. So we, uh, uh, col colleagues and myself, pushed to pass the Dennis Perone Brownie Mary Act. So now we're able to do that again. But we need to do more because it's an enormous strain on the industry, although I have to say that people have been so incredibly generous with their donations, understanding the need that people have. Because I know for myself, you know, I was I was working in nonprofit, but I was middle management. And when I was sick and on, you know, short term disability, it was expensive enough for me to survive, much less somebody who's on long term disability and is incredibly right. ill. Um but, you know, one thing that I think about, too, is going back to taxation. In California, as you know, we've been having mass extinction events. Our taxation structure, I believe, is a bit different than Oregon's. But with uh, all the, you know, the excise tax where every time it changes hands, you have that. They just right. got rid of the cultivation tax, state tax, mm -hmm. local cannabis right. taxes. We're, we're, I just went up to um, Humboldt this past fall, and there are so many people that are actually going to be giving up their permits. And the amount of suicides up there has been crazy, too, because people are losing their livelihoods. So to hear you say that from a federal standpoint, you want to keep the taxation conservative, I applaud that because we're already dealing with a great deal of hardship depending on what state you're in. Yep. And yep. we want to not have it where only the MSOs can afford to do business. It should be where we have small businesses and yep. and get more people working and, and create generational wealth because we're losing our middle class. Absolutely. It is, uh, it's uh, really a tragedy. Um, and uh, I, uh, I, mean, I, I fully support the notion that the cannabis industry should have a fair system of taxation and be contributing to the social welfare, uh, not unlike what happens with alcohol. Uh, it shouldn't be punitive and multi-layer. Mm -hmm. uh, the more taxes that get layered on that people think, well, this is a, a freebie, um, and you can have state and local and federal and um, county taxes. Um, it ends up being self-defeating. Uh, it ends up discouraging compliance. Uh, I think it actually, uh, there, less money gets collected when you pile that on. Oh, yeah. It's unfair. It penalizes the people who play by the rules. Um, and it's, uh, it's so counterproductive. So I am a huge fan of modest, fair taxes, uh, because I'm convinced that it'll actually raise more money in the long run, um, and it'll promote what we want in terms of a healthy, thriving industry that is fair, and it has an opportunity to engage people from communities that have paid the price for draconian policies in the past, that they can get on this train itself and share in the benefits. And speaking on that, what are your thoughts on how to create a better, a more fertile place for social equity in the business itself? 
Yeah. Well, we've uh, run into uh, problems uh, as we've attempted to promote social equity. I mean, I, I was the sponsor of the Restaurants Act that provided grants uh, to keep uh, the hard hit restaurants industry alive, 100,000 grants. We tried to write the legislation to allow uh, a head start for uh, socially disadvantaged businesses, for women and people of color, uh, ethnic minorities. Um, and it was, and we lost in court. Trump judges uh, ruled that that was discriminatory. Um, I, I like what's happening in many local communities where they're giving preferences for licensing for people who uh, are from marginalized communities. Um, part of what is important is for us to have the diversity of approaches uh, and the, on the state and local level uh, to be able to uh, be um, free of some of the federal interference we would have uh, by the creative litigation of, uh, of um, forces of darkness. Uh, uh, but it is uh, it is an area where uh, our cannabis industry is so diverse nationally uh, that it gives us an opportunity to make sure that it's not going to all be swallowed up by uh, big cannabis uh, that there's a that there's room for local licensures priorities given um, being able to uh, have the diversity of supply and participation. Uh, that's part of our strength. And it's also a reason I think that we've had such public acceptance. We've been successful in our ballot measures. Um, now, to be sure, uh, we've got real problems with not just people who are cutting corners, but what we're seeing in Southern Oregon and Northern California with cartels, mm -hmm. people who are destroying the environment, uh, disrupting water supplies. Um, it's very important that we are able to focus law enforcement efforts to squeeze out the bad actors. But one of the keys to squeezing out the bad actors is to have a universal, comprehensive federal reform that includes regulation, it includes taxation, uh, that is able to move forward in a way that that we can, the same way we no longer have uh, individual stills, uh, you know, like we had in Prohibition where we had bootleggers. Well, we provided uh, regulation, we provided taxation, we provided a system, uh, and it was no longer uh, worth it to people uh, to have a parallel system that was illegal. I long for the day that we do that for cannabis. Yeah, I do too. I'm I'm really looking forward to having a variety of things that are available, looking at um, when we start to get into more of interstate commerce and things like that. Because uh, when I, I, I teach classes online and I get people from all over the world, they're a different, different subjects with cannabis. And um, people will ask, well, how can I, how can I get that where I am? And I'm like, well, you know, the time will come where you'll have these different ways of using cannabis because we need 
to have a variety of different ways. And as we know now, a lot of times policy around these isn't necessarily based on fact, but it's based on what I've noticed when I've been traveling from state to state because I lecture about policy is that it's state culture, which is very strong, and also a lot about stigma. And so to really educate people that we do metabolize cannabis in many different ways. And so we have to have all these different ways of using it. We need to have emergent cannabinoids so that there are more ways to be able to help people. And also, you know, just really looking at um, when we're getting into just the business itself and creating opportunities for people dialing in on how people are closing the loops for people gaming the system. Like when we're looking at social equity, equity applicants in San Francisco have the opportunity to get grants. And one of my one of the roles that myself and my colleagues on the Cannabis Oversight Committee for San Francisco is determining who gets what percentage of the grants. And we made sure that people who were equity operators had to own 50% or more of- Good for you. Because they were just suffering. Well, and I really appreciate uh, what, uh, what you have done being a part of this uh, ecosystem. Uh, it is uh, the strength of this movement is the variety of people that have been involved, uh, the pursuit of information, mm -hmm. the creativity uh, from uh, state and local activities uh, and progress at the federal level. I, I really have enjoyed a chance to visit with you. I hope we can keep the conversation going because I think we're in the midst of this coming to a head. I think the the reform movement is cresting. Yes. Uh, I hope the federal government does its part to catch up with the ingenuity and creativity on the state and the local level. But I'm I'm quite optimistic, and I think we're going to get it across the finish line. I think so, too. I think another big part of it is activating voters and letting them know that it's time to come forward and let let your legislators know that, you know, I think for some people, the face of who uses cannabis is a very, it's a very outdated image. And it's time to say, hey, I take part in society. I'm productive. I pay taxes. I use cannabis and I vote. Yeah. I, and when you, when you think about, you know, people out there, how can they get more involved? How can they help make a mark for the better with this? What are your recommendations? Well, I think people ought to vote cannabis. Yes. I think it is important to be able to identify this as a powerful, positive political effort. Um, I'm working with this administration to have them embrace uh, reform. I was so excited that the president determined he was going to pardon 6,500 people. It's just a drop in the bucket. I mean, as, as uh, I mentioned, we, we just did that for over uh, 44,000 in Oregon, but symbolically very powerful. Yes. And also that the administration is reevaluating how cannabis is scheduled. Because um, I'm convinced going down this path is going to result in it being descheduled. If it's done in a way that's intellectually honest and we're able to work it through, I think the logic of this is powerful and I think we'll end up in the right spot. So I appreciate the chance to visit with you a little bit today. I think Thank it you is, so much. I think it is a time that is going to 
where all our efforts are going to come to a head. And I appreciate your efforts to try and spread the word. I look forward to uh, another conversation. I look forward to our future conversations too. Thank you so much, Representative Blumenauer, for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. And I just feel so heartened having wonderful, smart people like you on our side. Well, thanks for your efforts, Sarah. And I look forward to our next visit. Thank you. Take care. You bet. And everyone remember, Planted is twice a month. And if you like listening, please... Give us a review, share it with a friend, let us know what your favorite episodes are. And if you'd like to stay in touch over social media, we are Planted with Sarah Pion on Facebook and Planted with Sarah on Instagram and Twitter. You can also go to our website, www.plantedwithsarah.com, or listen to us on our parent network, Radio Misfits Network, where there are other great podcasts like one of my favorites, the Winemakers Podcast. So check it out. You can listen to Planted wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, whether that's Pandora, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Apple, Stitcher, tune in. We are there. So join us. And until next time, stay curious, stay safe. And remember, it's a wild world out there. Be good to one another. Until next time, take care.